Uh, we've been looking at uh, this series that we have entitled uh, The Fugitive, looking at Jonah, the runaway prophet, uh, who hears the message from God, doesn't like the message that he is given to go to a place called Nineveh. As a result of that, he runs from God, goes in the opposite direction, gets on a ship that's heading for the opposite uh, side of the Mediterranean Sea. And as a result of that, God, who wants to bring him to a place of uh, submission, follows Jonah around like an authority chasing after a runaway fugitive. He finds himself, uh, Jonah does, on a ship, heading away from God's commands and calls. God brings forth a storm, a storm that will not let up. And and after a course of events, Jonah tells the sailors of the ship to throw me overboard. That's the only way the storm will uh, calm down. And as a result, he finds himself sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. During that time, he feels as if he is going to drown. If someone doesn't save him, he is going to lose his life. And God, by his grace and mercy, sends forth a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Uh, And for three days and three nights, Jonah is in the belly of this great fish. As a result of that, Jonah comes to his senses, says, I need to get right with God. And nine verses in chapter 2 lay out the... um, Uh, prayer of desperation that Jonah gives uh, to God. And it's at that point that Jonah uh, is uh, vomited out of this great fish. When the Lord tells the fish to do that, he's vomited out onto dry land. And this is where we find ourselves in Jonah chapter 3. We're only going to look at verse 10 this morning, but let's stand and read all of chapter 3. And let's learn from what God's word has to say to us this morning. This is what Jonah 3 tells us. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah opened the word, uh, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was an important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. Our text for the morning. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Father God, we come before you. And as we close out uh, this passage of Scripture, chapter 3, we come to a text that seems to be a bit baffling to us. Lord, it seems as if you changed your mind. And Lord, that seems a bit odd to us as we uh, know what other Scriptures say. So Lord, help us to be able to uh, put this into proper perspective, to allow us to know Uh, what we should about who you are and how you interact with us so that we may praise you more um, and uh, honor you more and love you more, that we can uh, live a life that lives according to who you are 
and what you've done. So, Lord, uh, speak to your people and speak through your servant this morning as we look to your living and active word of God. We love you and thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Over the last three weeks, we have invested a lot of time on this subject of change. The message that Jonah brings to the Ninevites is a message of change. What the Ninevites do last week, we learned, is they change. And now we come to the third person in the story. If Jonah was one part and the Ninevites were another, then the third person in the story is God. And verse 10 tells us that in essence, God changes his mind. That he looks to the Ninevites and he sees what the Ninevites do, that they turn from their wickedness, that they repent and and uh, and put on sackcloth and fast and believe God, that as a result of that, what God was threatening uh, he was going to do, the destruction of Nineveh, in fact, he says, no, I, I won't do that. I-, I will show them compassion and love. This idea of change, as we've learned throughout these couple weeks, is a part of our life. We, we change everything from clothes to jobs. Uh, we, change, uh, we see changes in the weather. We see changes even in our, our own lives. It comes sometimes right away, as the weather does. One, at one moment, it's beautiful out. And if you remember last week, it was, it was overcast last week, but all of a sudden, it just started to rain here. I mean, it poured here for about 20 minutes, and then, then it got nice again, and then it would start to rain again. Weather changes, it seems, at a moment's notice, but other change happens, it's more drawn out. Uh, some of you are experiencing that long and drawn out change. Some of us are, are enrolling our kids into the early uh, stages of elementary school. Noah just started the first grade uh, last Wednesday. And some of you remember those days with your children. And I know that there's some that aren't here today or may not even be here next week because they're taking that same first grader who, who's changed and, and now they're heading to college. Even we as human beings change. God speaks about change in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that there's a season for everything. And if there's a season for everything, then there must be times of change. And yet we come to a passage this morning that says that God changes. Now this idea of change, this word is defined as the act or process or result of altering or modifying something. And so what it's telling us is that God is altering where he was at at point A to get to a different place in thinking, thought, or action. He's modifying a predetermined decision or plan that he has. Now, when we bring that question up, if we take verse 10 on face value, we've got some questions to ask. If God changes his mind, then what does that mean? Does that mean that God uh, sometime uh, at any point in the future can say, you know what, I know I've said this in my word. I know that I said I was going to do A, B, and C, but I don't like that idea. I'm going to go with something different. Or maybe I I regret that I made that decision, and so I'm going to change it. Or new information comes along that brings new enlightenment that maybe a, a different direction is needed. Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen the news about uh, the uh, terrorist uh, um, bomber from the Pan Am flight that destroyed that plane uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing over 200 passengers. 
And the big news was, wasn't that they had found the guy. The guy was found. He was found to be guilty uh, in a Scottish um, court uh, room, put uh, in prison for all of his life, that he would live out the rest of his days in prison. But we heard the story. What happened? It was breaking news. I was getting ready for work uh, and watching one of the news things, and there was just astonishment that the court had changed its mind, and because this man was suffering from cancer... They wanted to show compassion to him and send him back home so that he could die with his family and be close to home. Well, of course, that brought outrage to everybody. Why? Because the court had changed their mind. That because of new information, the court that once said this man was going to spend the rest of of his time in jail now was going to be able to be home. And then, of course, the outrage was the kind of response that this man got in Libya when people came and they cheered and they applauded this man who was a part of killing hundreds of people. And people were furious. What if God responded like that? What if things that we held to so um, closely and tightly to that God wakes up one day and says, I'm going to change my mind. My perspective has changed. I'm going to go another direction. When we come to a text like this, we have to start asking, what does this verse say to us about God? What does it mean? Well, to be able to answer that in a proper way, we have to get a proper perspective. If I was to ask some of the young kids in the service today, um, the question, which is moving um, around the other? Is it that the uh, earth moves around the sun? Or does the sun move around the earth? Now, if I was asked my six-year-old Noah that question, he would emphatically say, he would tell me which one's moving. He would say, the sun's moving. He says, because as I look and I see the sun, the sun starts out in the east in the morning, and then throughout the day, I've not moved. I'm in the same place. But at the end of the day, it's all the way over in the west. And then it's gone. And from his perspective... What he would say is is that his perspective tells him that the sun moves around the earth. Now, is that right or wrong? Wrong. Amy, we've got some work to do. Okay? All right? That's all right. They're working on some issues down there. That's okay. He, He maybe was a bit confused, so that's all right. But we know that the perspective, because we've seen what happens, that the earth uh, revolves around the sun. We have to have the right perspective. What happens when we read that God sees that uh, they uh, turn themselves away from their evil ways in verse 10, that God has compassion. He does not bring uh, the uh, things that he threatened, the destruction he threatened. We start to say, well, God changed. We didn't change. It was God who changed. We run into some real difficult places because God declares in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 that I, the Lord, do not change. So this is why atheists will say, see, this is why you can't trust the scriptures. It contradicts itself. God says he does not change. And here in this passage, and there's about a half a dozen other passages where God seems to regret or seems to change his mind in regards to an action or activity that he is going to be a part of. And they say, see, it contradicts it. It doesn't make any sense. And so what happens is, is we have to do one thing. We have to get a proper perspective. We have to know what God is articulating, why he's articulating it, and how we are to respond. Because if we think God changes, then we've got some problems. Because it creates 
a problem that, uh, of how we understand and know God. I want to have us pull up a, a slide here. Because if we take uh, jo- Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, at face value then we have to look at God as a changing God. And there's a theology that's out there that recently has taken some, uh, has gotten some uh, traction in the evangelical world that says the following. The God of the open view is a changing God. He changes his mind and feels emotions. He is dynamic and personal, interacting with his creation on a moment-by-moment basis. We would agree with that. God is involved with us on a moment-by-moment basis. But this is where we disagree. He learns from our actions and reacts based on those actions. What it means is is that God uh, is waiting to see how you respond to a certain situation. And as you respond, then He responds. So there's a lot of possibilities of how God can respond, but He's waiting for uh, Tim to uh, make his decision. It goes on to say that He learns from our actions. He reacts based on those. He is like an infinitely intelligent chess player who anticipates the moves of his creation and responds accordingly. Before you flip, go back for a second. What that last statement means is an infinitely intelligent chess player. If you've ever played against a good chess player, I know Lloyd's, uh, Lloyd Logger's a good chess player in our church. They know where you can move, right? They know that you could go here with your pawn, here with your rook. They know where you can go. But what they do not know is what? What move you're going to make. So what he is saying is, the the author of this, is that God is a God who knows possibilities, but he does not know decisions. Okay, let's continue on here. Uh, He is, uh, let's see here, he is a dynamic, ever-changing God. He's a God who does not know the future, since it is to a degree dependent upon free moral agents. What that means is that because you make the decisions... God knows you're going to eat lunch today, but he doesn't know if you're going to Applebee's, Chili's, or uh, McDonald's. He knows those are possibilities, but he has to wait to see how you respond to those things as a result. God cannot know in advance what a free moral agent will do before he does it. He doesn't know. He knows that you could go to those places, maybe because you've done them in the past, because you've said you've enjoyed them, but he doesn't know where you're going to go. If he did, then we would simply be robots living in a pre-programmed, determined, and unchangeable life. Move on. Additionally, if all future events are determined by God, then he is ultimately responsible for all things, including evil. So he's saying if we go this route, then God is uh, the one who is responsible to be held responsible for all things, including evil, which is untrue. The relationship between man and God is a partnership where man exercises his free will and God adjusts his plan in light of man's choices to accomplish his final purposes. Now let's stop there. That's a mouthful. What that means is is that God and man, Tim and God are walking together. And we're making decisions. I'm making my decisions and God is with his. But at the end of the day, even after all my decisions are made and all his decisions are made, they're going to somehow come together and accomplish the final purposes that God has laid forth. It, it's not going to be as maybe exactly how he planned it, but he knew the possibilities and he knew how it would end. God has willingly chosen this. This isn't that he doesn't know it. He's willingly given up this uh, idea of knowing all things in order to have a meaningful relationship with his creation. 
He's a God who feels emotions and responds to his creation based upon their needs and prayers. We've got one more there. The future is partially open and partially closed as determined by God, meaning he knows some of the future but not all of it. Much of the future is settled ahead of time, either by God's predestining will or by existing earthly causes. But it is not exhaustively determined. Part of the future is decided by free agents and is unsettled. As a result, God knows the future in terms of possibilities, not certainties. Now, where do you think I got that? What, who would believe that? What's that? Christian science? No. Lutheran? No. That comes from a man by the name of Gregory Boyd. Gregory Boyd leads one of his pastors, one of the largest Baptist churches in the state of Minnesota. That's the open view of God. This isn't some crazy, whacked out cult that believes these things, but it takes passages of Scripture. Not all Baptists, by the way, believe this, okay? I don't want to make people think that we've got to hate the Baptists now, okay? This is a small view of what Baptists believe, but there's a group of individuals that Gregory Boyd had connections with uh, Bethel College and Seminary in Minnesota, which is a fine uh, college. Uh, But this is the kind of stuff that is going on, that is being articulated. Why? Because we come to passages like Jonah chapter 3, and if we don't have the proper perspective, we create a doctrine about God that is patently untrue. Because if this is who God is, then God is not all-knowing. Even if he allowed himself not to be all-knowing. But God is all-knowing. The scripture identifies that he is all-knowing. So what do we do when we come to a passage of scripture that doesn't make sense? Write this down in your outlines. This is incredibly important for us to remember. The first thing you have to do when you come to a passage of scripture that does not make sense is, first of all, put it into context. What does the context say about the uh, verse that you are reading? Jehovah's Witness will say, based on the scripture, that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, they say, and they build a whole doctrine on it, that Jesus Christ was the first individual, the first being to be created. Is that right or is that wrong? It's wrong. Was Jesus created? No. Jesus Christ was in the beginning with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has no beginning and has no end. He is God. But they take a passage of Scripture and they don't uh, bring it into the full context of what is being articulated and they build a false understanding about God based on that one verse that is taken out of context. Be very careful that we do not take verses out of context, that we understand what the context is meaning. Number two, we must always compare verses with other scripture. If we see that it says Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation, or if we see that God changes his mind, what does the Bible say about that? Are there any other passages that would agree with that? And if we come to that place and say, yes, it seems as if that this passage says the following, even within its context, we have to ask the question, is there anywhere else that it says it? What does the majority of Scripture say on the subject? Well, we know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus was created. And so we cannot come up, just because we take a passage out of context, that Jesus Christ is a created being 
He's the firstborn, but he's created nonetheless. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite in regards to that. So we must be getting the wrong perspective on that. The final thing that we have to do, once we've put it into context, we've compared it with other scriptures, is we have to look at what the church has said. Now, what I mean by church is not meaning what Village Bible Church has said on it, but what has the church throughout the years said on that given subject? Now, for us in a Bible church where we would hold to what we call sola scriptura, meaning the Bible is our only authority, we would say, well, why would we look to the church? Don't we know that there were some bad times in the church? And and that kind of connects us with uh, the Catholic church in some uh, ways, especially uh, pre-Reformation. Well, let me tell you something. On much of what we would hold as essential uh, in church history, uh, the, the church fathers agree with those things. And that's no different than here because the church fathers and the scholars who have come before us and even present day scholars say that God does not change. So we have to look at what the church has said, what it's said in the past, and what it's presently saying on the subject. So what do I have to say to Gregory Boyd? I would say what the church has held as a doctrine, a core doctrine, for many centuries, and that is this. Write this down. It brings up a big word. You want to know how God, what it means that God doesn't change? We look at his immutability. I can spell that out for you. Let's see if Spellcheck got it right. I-M-M-U-T-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. Immutability. God does not change. Well, how do we define that? Write this down. It means that God is unchanging in his personhood, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in his response to certain situations. Does God always respond the same way? No. All throughout the Bible, we see that God interacts with people in, in some different ways. In, in some ways, uh, God destroyed uh, some cities that, uh, and people that were living contrary to his word. Uh, he did it with the flood in Noah's day. He did it uh, by fire in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God deals with people um, and uses different things in their lives to bring about change in a good way or a bad. So he does interact differently in his response to certain situations. So we need to understand this idea. If we're going to take Jonah chapter 3 and understand it correctly, we've got to look at this idea of God's immutability. To do that, we've got to see it in four areas this morning. The first one is in God's character. We have to look at God himself and say, God, do you change? So when we look at Jonah chapter 3, that when you saw what people did, that you changed your mind. Well, we have to look at him and say, well, how else does he respond? What does he do? Well, it's important that we study God. I don't know about you, but when I met Amanda, my desire, because I loved her, was to study her, was to know who she was, her likes and dislikes, how she responded in certain situations, what she liked to do and what she didn't like to do, what her pet peeves were and the things that encouraged her. And that's what we need to do with God. What is God? Who is God? How does he act? How does he respond? Why do we do that? Because we love him. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, a a pastor from a couple hundred years ago, said the following, the proper study of a church is the study of God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a Christian, 
is the name, nature, person, work, and doings and the existence of our great God whom we call our Father. There's something that is exceedingly beneficial to the mind when we are contemplating God. It is a subject that is so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Think about that for a moment. What he's saying is, is this is what we need to be doing. Now, for some of you, you say, Tim, theology doesn't mean much to me. It's kind of boring. This has real issue, uh, um, real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, implications. Thank you, Scott. Implications uh, for our lives. This isn't just something that we have and we say, hey, it's not all that important. This is incredibly important because if we don't understand who God is and how God reacts, then we don't know our God. And then we have to really be careful of what faith we put into that God because we're not sure of who he is or what he's all about. So what are the implications that we see? Well, if we look at God's character, the first thing we need to understand is that God is unchanging in his perfection. What that means is God is perfect. God has always been perfect. God will always be perfect. God doesn't need to reform. He doesn't need to repair anything. He doesn't need to fix things up. He's always been perfect. Every part of him is perfect. Matthew 5, 28 tells us that. James 1, 17 says there's no variation or change in him or anything that he does. His essence never changes. When he introduces himself, he says, I am who I am. When we introduce ourselves, it changes as we change through time. When I was a young man, people would say, who are you? I would identify myself as Bill and Michelle Bedall's son. Just the other day, a little boy came to our house and I identified myself as Noah and Joshua's daddy. It changes, not with God. God says, I am whom I am. So we see that he's perfect. Nothing changes about him. But notice, the personhood of God doesn't change. What that means is his attributes don't change. His love, his justice, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his patience. God is always omnipotent. God is always omnipresent, and God is always omniscient. That has never changed. God has always been those things and always will be. It didn't change when Christ came to earth because uh, what we know is, is that he didn't change. God didn't become flesh, and all of a sudden then flesh become God. But God, the divine nature and the human nature, came together and it formed what we call as the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ. And so even in the incarnation, we see that God does not change. Now, Scripture is very clear that God is an unchanging God. In fact, Isaiah 44, 6, that there's nothing that can define him, not time nor distance can define who he is. Psalm 102, 25 through 27 says, God is not like a man. He does not change or grow old. God does not deal with the pains and struggle of old age. He doesn't deal with failure. He's perfect. He doesn't worry about passing away because God in his perfection and his personhood is eternal and is always the same. Next, how about his promises? Scripture is clear that God's word does not change. Uh, Turn for a moment to Psalm uh, 119 for a moment. Psalm 119, if you're in the book of Jonah, go to your left to the big book of Psalms is about midway through the Old Testament, if you will. And Psalm 119 says the following in verse, let's see here, 
Verse 89 of Psalm 119. This is what the psalmist says. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You've established the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day for all these For all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. Notice what he says in the first part of the word, the verse there. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. What does that do for him? It says at the end of it that even though he's suffering trial and tribulation, though his enemies encamp around him, he is secure that his word and his promises stand secure. So when we look at God's perfection and his personhood, and we see what God articulates in His Word, then we can believe without a shadow of a doubt that God's Word is true. Write this passage down this morning in your outlines. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Let me read that for us here. Numbers 23, verse 19. It says this, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We need to understand that God doesn't have something written down in the scriptures and then say, you know what, I really don't like what I wrote down in Numbers 23, 19. I do want to change. This whole salvation of the, of the um, human beings, I, I don't want to do anymore. I, I want to do something else. I don't want to be that kind of God anymore. Does he lie? Does he change his mind? Of course he doesn't. God's word reigns supreme and it remains unchanged. There's one other thing we have to look at and that is his plans. Because of his perfection, his personhood and promises that remain unchanged, then we too must affirm that all God's plans remain faithful and come to fruition as well. And that he knows that they're going to come to fruition. In fact, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says, no matter how the world changes, no matter how hard we try to mess things up, that the plans and purposes of God cannot and will not be thwarted. We can't change what God has placed into uh, his decree and plan. God has purposes. Oh, as you say, Tim, what happens to your uh, free will? Well, yes, you still have a free will. But what I would say is, is that within the free will that you have, uh, the best way to articulate it is when it's raining outside and you uh, head out of, into the parking lot or out to your car, what, what do you grab with you to put over you? An umbrella. That umbrella covers you. And it covers you whether you go left or whether you go right. Correct? If you go frontwards or backwards, that umbrella is always covering you. I use that example, and I, I, I don't remember who I stole it from, but at someone I got it from someone. And uh, it is a good illustration of how our free will works within the sovereignty of God. Because we're not robots. Gregory Boyd's right in that. We're not robots. We have actions, and our actions have consequences. But as we act, God's providence, His decrees are always over us. And as we respond, we fall in line with how that works. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know. 
I don't know. And there's some things about God that you just say, God, that's why you're God and I'm not. And those are the things that probably we'll spend eternity worshiping God about because he'll reveal some more to us about why he did what he did and why he does what he does. And we'll be blown away by it. But God's plans cannot be thwarted. And so we as a people, even as we approach Jonah 3.10, must affirm what Malachi says. I, the Lord, do not change. So then how do we deal with verse 10 of chapter 3 of Jonah? What do we do that it seems that God changes his mind? Well, we need to understand some more about God's immutability. We see that God's unchanging. Write this down in your second point there. He never changes in his call for humanity to repent. One of the things that we see throughout Scripture, in fact, it's given 200 times in the Old Testament and over 50 times in the New Testament, is the call for people to change and repent. We see it in passages of Scripture like Ezekiel 14.6, Ezekiel 18.32, Joel 2.2, I'm sorry, 2.12. In the Old Testament, time and time again, especially focused in on the people and the nation of Israel, he would call out to people and he'd say, it's time to repent. If you don't repent, then judgment is going to come. Affliction is going to come. Turn and change course. Give up your wicked ways and turn back to me. This is true in the New Testament. Again, 50 times in the New Testament. Jesus, right after uh, John the Baptist was put into prison in Mark chapter, uh, let's see here, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says that he went out and began to preach the good news and the preaching of the good news was that of repentance. He says it's time to repent. It's time to turn. All throughout the book of Acts, we see that what God articulates in the good news is repent, repent, repent. It's time to change. I love what uh, Peter says about this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Kind of an overarching uh, thrust of what is being articulated here. This is what it says but uh, in verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul articulated this when he was witnessing to the men of Athens in uh, Acts uh, chapter 17, verse 30. He says this, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So how does that work within the book of Jonah? God calls the people in Nineveh to what? Repent. Change direction. Had God changed in his plan? No. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God has been calling people back to himself. Turn from your wicked ways. Come follow me. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus and the apostles did the same thing. Repent and be baptized. Repent, turn from your wicked ways and follow Jesus Christ. So the first thing we need to understand is even the call to Nineveh to repent is one that is unchanging. The third thing that we see this morning is uh, that God shows compassion toward those who do repent. That God shows compassion to those who repent. This isn't, this isn't changing. God has shown compassion to all those who repent. In fact, I don't know of one time in Scripture, I didn't exhaust it all, 
but I don't know of one time in Scripture that someone repented and God said, nah, nope, get lost. God shows compassion. He does it three times in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. There's a terrible storm on the Mediterranean Sea. The sailors are thinking that they're going to die. They learn that Jonah's the reason for the storm. And so they begin to interact with Jonah. And they find out who Jonah is. And Jonah says, you've got to throw me overboard to take care of this storm. And they cry out to God, don't hold this man's life against us. We're only doing what we're told to do. They throw him overboard. And God protects the sailors. And he doesn't kill them. Why? Because they, they give vows and they cry out to God. And they ask God to save them. And what happens? He does. He shows compassion. In chapter 2, Jonah's thrown into the water. He's drowning. And after that uh, experience, it says that he cried out in his distress. He was at a place of great desperation. And now God hears his prayer. He hears his cry for desperation. What does God do? God is compassionate to him and saves him. Puts him into the belly of a whale, saving him from drowning. What does he do in chapter 3? He sees that the Ninevites are repenting, they're fasting, they're believing God, and they're turning from their wicked ways. And what does God do? Just like he always does, he shows compassion. This is how God works. It's never changed. It's always the same. We see it all throughout Jonah. We see it all throughout the Bible as well. Write these passages down. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. It says, God has mercy on those who repent. Joel 2, 13 and 14. We read verse 12 a minute ago. God is compassionate. And it says that the message um, that God gives is to repent, to turn from your wicked ways. And it says, I will return to you. God says, you, you return to me and I'm going to come back to you. In fact, notice what um, Jeremiah 18 says. This is very important to our understanding of Nineveh. You say, well, that's for an individual. What about a city? This is what Jeremiah 18, write this passage down, 18 verses 7 and 8 says. A lot of passages of scripture, by the way. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uh, uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I planned. Let me say that again. If at any time I announce, who did he announce to that there was going to be destruction? The Ninevites, right? This is what he says to Jeremiah. That if a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down or destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I planned. God works in this idea that if someone repents, my unchanging nature is to show them compassion. That's what I do. That's my modus operandi, if you will. He shows compassion. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Why? Because if we believe in Christ, then God shows us compassion. And instead of being perish, perishing, we are shown compassion. We are given everlasting life. 
The Bible tells us time and time again. John 6, 37 tells us this. Malachi 3, 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. But then he says, return to me and I will return to you. James 4, 7 through 10 says that we should draw near to him and he will draw near to us. When we respond to God, God will always respond back to us. He always does that. And we respond with repentance. God always responds with compassion. Now notice, this is what Jonah knows is going to happen. Notice what he says in Jonah 4. Look to your text again. Now Jonah, in the next verse, he's greatly displeased and becomes angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? He's telling us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. Here's why I'm running from you, God. Because I knew. He's like, I knew it, God. You're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He says, I knew you were going to do this. You always do this. You send a messenger, the people repent, and they turn back to you, and you say, all right, I'll show compassion, because you're a loving and compassionate God. Jonah even knew that God was unchanging in his response to people. The final thing I want us to see is that God is unchanging in his condemnation of those who rebel. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it is clear that God condemns those who stand and in rebellion against God. He always deals with those who rebel. Matthew 13 tells us twice that God uh, is going to condemn the wicked. In the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, he condemns them for their sin. In Korah's rebellion, they are condemned for their sin. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are condemned for their sin. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts are condemned for their rebellion and sin. God is consistent in this idea that if you rebel, he will deal with you. He will deal with you severely. In fact, Second Peter is a great passage for this. Uh, just uh, write down Second Peter 1 through 10. It's kind of a reminder of this. It says the following, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you. They were secretly introducing uh, destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he gives kind of a review. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's is going to happen to the ungodly. It says, If he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature and despise authority. So what do we do with Jonah chapter 3, verse 10? We put it into context. Had the Ninevites not responded by faith, believing in God, I don't know why it keeps doing that, but believing God and turning from their wicked ways, God would have destroyed them. That's what He always does. 
And so we need to understand that God's person doesn't change in its character. His call to humanity to repent has never changed. It's always been the same. His compassion that he shows the world uh, when they repent is the same. God's uh, condemnation for those who rebel does not change. And so what do we see? Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 is not a question in God's changing. It is a trophy. It is a a, uh, trophy case that is enshrining the unchanging nature of God. So what does all this mean? Let me close this out in two minutes. What does this mean for us? You say, Tim, boring message. I don't like it. Doesn't do anything for me. Yes, it does. It gives us four things that we need to do. Number one, it gives us an assurance that we can stand firm on God's word. You believe God's word to be true? Why? Why do you believe God's word to be true? You believe it because God promises things in there and God has not changed. The whole understanding of God and his word is that he stands behind it and it's a guarantee because he is unchanging that his word is unchanging. If God doesn't lie, then we can take all of his truth in scripture and say it is in fact truth. There's no lies in it. There's no uh, uh, things that we need to be mistaken by and say, well, did God really mean what he said? Of course he meant what he said because he's completely truthful and we can stand firm on it. Number two, because God is immutable, it enables us to be secure in our salvation. How would you like it if the person that stood behind your salvation said, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get out of that business. This last week I, I learned, I, I sent I sent my mortgage payments through um, the electronic, uh, on the computer, electronic payment. And I got a response back that said, we won't take your payment anymore. And I said, well, what's that all about? My mortgage company, it was a big mortgage company, just closed up. They just closed up. And there's like, we don't know where your mortgage is going to go right now. We're not sure where that's going. And what I want to know is... Uh, when do you expect to get money, you know? If you're not going to have me paying anything, you've got to give me some information. But how would you like it if, just like that mortgage company, God said, you know what, I'm out of the salvation business. You know what, good luck, go find someone else to save you. You wouldn't like that, would you? How would you like that you get up to heaven and God says, you know what, I was only in the salvation business to 1992. I got out of it after that. It just wasn't very profitable. Sorry, you didn't get the memo? But that would only be if God changes. But God is unchanging, my friends. And because of that, we can stand secure that says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? What can, my friends? Nothing. Why? Because God doesn't change. And when he says nothing can separate us, we can stand secure that we are saved. Because what God says is true. It reminds us that sin will bring judgment. The Bible is example after example that when we sin, God brings judgment. We have to recognize that. We have to understand that. Jonah teaches us that. We run away from God when God's called us to something. He says he will discipline those that he loves. And that's what he does with Jonah. He brings him into circumstances and issues into Jonah's life to bring Jonah back to himself. He does that with even sinful nations and cities as he did with Nineveh. It reminds us of that and we have to be very careful as how we live. Finally, we need to make this a standard uh, for all of us as Christians. What do you mean? What do you mean by this? Tim, God's immutability should be a standard for us as Christians? Yes. If we say we want to be like God, 
we want to live like God, then one of the parts of who God is is his immutability. And so what that means is we should try, we should strive to be immutable ourselves. Well, how do you do that? Well, you can start with what you say. The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't waver, go back and forth. What you say, let it be true. If you make a promise to someone, fulfill the promise. Be like God. God doesn't say, you know what, I don't want to fulfill that promise anymore. He remains faithful in that promise. Be faithful in all that you do, whether at work, at home, with neighbors, friends, whoever. God is faithful, ever faithful. We should be faithful as well. God is steadfast in his love relationship with us. That is a great thing we can be pursuing as well, being steadfast in our relationship with God. This is something that we need to strive to be a part of. Why does God uh, show compassion? Because God always shows compassion, not just to the Ninevites, but to all who repent. Why is that? It's because we serve an unchanging God. I love what the writer of Hebrews says about our Savior. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? Let's pray.